Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Welcome back to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. My name's Jackie Lewis, and I'm the clinical nutritionist for BN Healthy. Today's episode is pretty exciting. I mean, they're all exciting. This is episode number 54, which is exciting in itself, really. This week, we've got Georgie Beams with us, uh, just talking about mindset again, and just another few different ways of accessing those parts of you that keep tripping you up after weight loss surgery. Perhaps you're feeling stuck and you're not quite sure how to shift those last few kilograms, or perhaps you're feeling a bit like you're lost and you're making outward decisions and something's coming up every time that keeps getting in the way of your long-term success. Well, Georgie Beams is the one to listen to, so stay tuned. We're going to talk about sabotage and different methods of getting into our unconscious and clearing out those blocks that get in the way. Georgie's a registered psychologist who works with weight loss surgery patients pre and post surgery in the area of eating and weight and identifying and clearing key sabotage blocks that are seeing old habits sneaking back in after surgery. Georgie has worked in a weight loss surgery clinic herself as a key member of the team for over five years and now supports women online with the exact same tools in her neurobariatric transformation or NBT program and has thousands of hours of experience working one-on-one and helping people to reverse regain post-surgery and start losing weight again. So without further ado, I welcome Georgie Beams. Welcome, Georgie Beams. Thank you for your time. I'm so excited to have you here. It's always nice to, again, unpick the psychological side of the weight loss surgery journey. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jackie. I'm really happy to be here. Excellent. So I've introduced you from a more professional standpoint. We all know you're totally qualified to discuss weight loss surgery. Tell me a little bit more about how you ended up working in this area and what it means for you now. Yeah, so I started working in the area of eating and weight for a number of years. And back in 2016, I fell into the area of weight loss surgery and I kind of fell in love with it. And I worked in-house in a weight loss surgery clinic for over five years, worked with pre-surgery, post-surgery. I've seen it all. I've heard it all. You would have, definitely. (laughs) And Definitely. And I feel very passionate about this area. I feel like it's an area that weight loss surgery patients need more support, whether that's pre-surgery, post-surgery. And I now support weight loss surgery patients online and globally with their sabotage, which is an area very dear to my heart because I have to, I've struggled as well with my eating and weight. So Mm -hmm. I've got the the real personal understanding and professional, which I think is important. I think it is. It really brings that And I think it's the empathy and the understanding and also the how-to, which is a beautiful blend. Yeah, really important to have all of that. Thank you. So you've mentioned this word sabotage and we all talk about it and we all know that it lurks beneath. What do you think? What's the million dollar question? You know, we sign up for surgery, we invest the dollars, we do all the things. 
only to be sabotaging our success at the end of the day. What's going on? So the first thing I just wanted to mention is that sabotage after surgery is unintentional. Mm. So no one goes out consciously to sabotage their success, but yet we know that weight regain is one of the biggest issues that I deal with and other professionals in this area after surgery. So we know that iceberg analogy, Yes, we have the 10% of us above the line in terms of our conscious mind. So that's very logical. It's very analytical. Anytime that we go on a diet with all those calculations, we are engaging our conscious mind. But yet we have our subconscious mind and this is 90% of who we are. And this is the part of us that is hidden or submerged. And our habits live here, our feelings live here, and our eating lives here. Like all of that Mm. eating sabotage happens at a subconscious level. And that's why this area is so complex because there's many layers to it and it's happening outside of our conscious awareness. So often we're not even aware of why we are sabotaging, Mm. which is, I guess, where I come in in that area of psychology in this area. It's quite incredible to think we get up, we get dressed, we have a plan for the day, we have a job, we have a family, we have children, and someone else is running the show, it seems. (laughs) So we get up thinking that it's me and I'm putting my clothes on, I'm feeding the kids, I'm, you know, doing my job. Who's running the show, do you think? Well, I think part of the problem is we don't know who is running the show. So Mm. because we think we are, that's just Mm. our conscious mind, and yet there's all of this stuff that's happening under the surface that we're not even aware of that is contributing to our eating either right now or later. So such as stress, uncomfortable feelings, different triggers, is all going on and we're just not aware of it. And it's all having a big impact. And so we talk about sabotage and also willpower. So it's almost like willpower is the thing we think we can just force down on top of sabotage and have it take over and if I just will and will and will and keep all of this kind of structure and control set up, all things will be well. It doesn't necessarily sound like that's the case. No. And back when I was really struggling with my eating and weight, I thought my problem was a control problem. I just didn't have enough control. I didn't have enough willpower. All of my friends seemed to have that and there was something wrong with me. But what I didn't realize at the time is that willpower is a finite resource. We all have the same amount and it runs out at some point. And it's kind of like working with a drained battery. So let's just say, for example, nighttime eating is your habit where you might put the kids in bed, TV's on and the chocolate comes out. What can happen is you wake up that morning and you think you feel strong and you think, you know what? I'm not going to eat tonight. I'm not going to have that chocolate. I feel good. It's not going to happen. Then you go about your day there's stress happening, you're busy, you know, you might have school pickup, you've got dinner, etc. And by the time you get to 9pm at night, it's like mm. that willpower battery is drained and you're like, I'm done. Where's the chocolate? Absolutely. And it might be chocolate or wine or Correct. anything. Anything. And there's yep. an element of habit in there, but it's also that, oh my God, I've just given everything I have. And so willpower's gone out the window. And then comes the beat up, I suppose, is I don't have enough willpower. I just need to have more willpower. How do I get more willpower? Tomorrow's another day. I'll have more willpower tomorrow. And so you can see that vicious cycle starting to emerge. So after weight loss surgery, are there common sabotage themes that you see in your patients? 
Yeah, there are two main sabotage eating patterns that I see after surgery. So the first one is eating a specific food at a specific time. So for instance, it might be that nighttime eating Mm. with that chocolate coming out at 9pm in exactly those same conditions, like everyone's in bed, TV's on, you're alone, etc. Or it might be three shortbread biscuits with a cup of tea, etc. So it's quite a specific time of day with typically specific type of foods. Secondly, is more generalized. So it could just be snacking or grazing or just topping up all day. And what I found with many clients, it's almost like this sense of scared to get hungry. So it's mm. like just go through the day. So topping up, maybe there's a bit of boredom eating coming in there as well. But there's no one time of day and there's no one specific food. So it might just be like whatever you can get your hands on. Yeah. I'd like to just go back to that comment you just made about grazing and the fear of hunger as a feeling. That one I think is a big one to unpack because there is this understanding that you'll never be hungry after weight loss surgery or you won't have that insatiable need to fill yourself with food anymore. And I think there's a few things that work and you'll be the best one to know is Is it that prior to weight loss surgery when we're always eating or we have that trajectory of overeating, is it that hunger isn't necessarily a feeling that we associate with and something that we're trying to hide from in a lot of ways? And then once we do feel hunger, I get there's a sense of panic of, oh my God, something's wrong, I'm hungry. When really I like to retrain and sort of think hunger is a signal that we need to start listening to. What's your experience with that kind of fear around hunger? Maybe even something a little bit different, Jackie. My experience has been that it's definitely a fear of getting hungry. And this Mm. typically, the pattern that I've observed has been, this is a young feeling. So maybe growing up, you had six brothers and sisters. And so you really you know, had to get in first with the food. <laughs> Otherwise, you would be left hungry. Or yeah. maybe parents didn't have a lot of money and there wasn't a lot of food. I've heard all sorts of stories where fridges were locked, cupboards were locked growing up, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Or just even that sense of control, even if it wasn't that extreme, that parents controlled the food and lots of stories like that. So I have traced back that that feeling is actually a young feeling and a fear. And then as a, obviously as a psychologist, we've done some work around clearing that, which has been really helpful. It's fascinating how food is such a ingrained, behavioral, learned, emotional, it's kind of tied up in every part of our psychology, I think, isn't it? And I just don't think we, I mean, even my generation, and I'm not that old, looking at how we used to manage, you know, here's your dinner here's your serving, eat what's on your plate, don't leave the table until you're finished. And now I look at it, even just one generation later, we're like, what would you like? How much do you need? You don't want any, that's okay. You know what I mean? Unless they're not saying no to every meal of the day, but there's a lot more autonomy around eat when you're hungry and making those choices for yourself based on how you're feeling at the time, which I just think there's generations and generations that just don't have that framework so it's like oh it's 12 o'clock I better eat so we run on the time and we run on you know someone's serving us up food that may or may not suit our serving size it's incredible how much is wrapped up in it absolutely and I think also the whole external cues versus internal I also think that 
for the most part, we're not that good at tuning in and being really aware of our internal cues. Mm. And so when I start working with weight loss surgery patients and starting to go within and, and understand it, it's, it's just so foreign. And that's true. And to expand on that, how do we make it less foreign? Is there, you know, is it a long process or is it different for everybody? Are there key things that you input there? Yeah, so I am going to talk through just a few of my key steps and part of that and provide your listeners with a free tool, which is a great way to actually come back into the body and tune in and be more aware of those internal cues, which I think is just so important after surgery as well. Yes, I think part of it is listening and starting to understand and look at ourselves rather than look for the external cues of like ritual, like you're saying, the, the nighttime eating is very ritualistic. It's like I do this and then I do this. And then once everybody's gone, I do this. And it's yep. about kind of pairing that behavior with something more productive perhaps as well and breaking those kind of associations too. Our brains are very good at connecting the dots, aren't they? Very good at connecting the dots and also maybe even digging a little bit deeper around like what's really going on here. So I've got the saying, which is the feelings before the food. So Mm. it's actually the feelings that send us to the food. So often we think, oh my gosh, I have just no control. I have no power. I just love chocolate too much. But really there's a feeling, an uncomfortable, typically an uncomfortable feeling that takes us to the food. And this is about these triggers happening in our subconscious mind that we were talking about before. And so it's really starting to tune in again to our body. And, you know, what am I feeling if I didn't eat this food? What might come up for me? And just getting a little bit more curious around that as well. Yeah, letting that develop, I guess. And that's kind of where the healing is, is actually not, I guess we look at food as a way of stuffing down emotion, but letting it pop up and knowing that it won't take us out in one hit. Will it? <laughs> that's right. That's but they right. are big emotions. I can understand why we don't want to look at them. Oh, 100%. 100%. Like it's not easy to do this type of work, but... Mm. It's incredibly healing and transformative. And particularly with the area of eating, it is complex. We can't just abstain from food. Mm. So we need to actually dig a bit deeper to understand why and unpack that. Why am I turning to food? Why did I get to that place where I was pre-surgery? What was going on for me? And starting to change our relationship with food. Yeah, it's practice, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so Georgie, with you know, needing to upgrade our understanding of food and our behaviours around it. The tools that you're using in your work, how do they roll out for your patients as well? Yeah. So I use essentially two main evidence-based tools. So one of those is EFT tapping and the other one is EMDR that works Mm -hmm. with your eye movements. So both of these tools are, are really effective in the three areas that I use them for weight loss surgery patients. The first one is just upgrading your relationship with food, which is so important after surgery Mm. because we need to make some changes there. The second area is your identity. So we know the old identity, the old pre-surgery identity needs to be an upgrade for longer term success and self-worth as well, just how we feel about ourselves. So for me, it's not just working specifically on the food. It's these other areas that contribute to how we feel about ourselves, which also affects our eating um, as well. Our choices, exactly. It is incredible. It is a cycle. It's like if I just loved myself enough or felt good about myself enough to make all these other choices, like when you do start to feel good, you make different choices. 
but it's getting to feel good first. So it is like chicken and egg really, isn't it? It's like finding that part of you that loves yourself enough to make these changes, which I think when people step up to weight loss surgery, it's that moment where they're like, I deserve more than this. And this is a, a, you know, an opportunity for me to find another avenue. And then what comes with that? And your work is critical for that kind of thing is to push all of that all in the same direction at the one time, I would imagine. Yeah. And really, I mean, if we're talking about self-worth, you know, feeling good enough, feeling mm. worthy, feeling deserving, et cetera. I mean, that's really such a foundational piece. That is something that really does need to be addressed as well as food itself. Yeah, definitely. And it's a beautiful mixture. And both of those tools you use, I've had some experience with myself. The EFT, is it emotional freedom, freedom technique. technique? Yes. And yes, EMDR? Eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah. It's a big one, isn't it? It's a big one. And I actually just finished a research study using these two tools for weight loss surgery patients. And the data was just fantastic in in terms of feeling like they had more control over their food cravings. So that increased by 77%. But the mental health component of it as well. So loneliness went down feeling more energetic went up, Mm. uh, feeling more calm. So that's why I love using these tools because Mm. of the mental health components. Plus there was a weight loss of two kilos on average. (laughs) Yeah. And to me, that's the the byproduct. This study was about food cravings. It wasn't about weight loss. So this was the byproduct of doing this really important work. So it's inner and outer work really. Yeah, that's right. I think the other key thing to mention is that it's not like that therapy where you go in and you dig up everything that's happened, which is beautiful because both of those techniques and having my own experience with it, I know you just kind of work through things that are now not necessarily digging up and kind of reactivating past hurts, I guess, and trauma. And the reason it's so effective is that the nervous system is involved. So anytime you can kind of rewire, like you say, and make changes to the nervous system, those situations that come up will just not have that zing to them. So Georgie, with these two tools that you're using, the EMDR and the EFT, it's quite interesting when you've done the work and you have the same situation present itself where you might have responded in a negative way. It's quite interesting that once you use these tools, how the same situations might present and we just organically respond in a different way to the point where sometimes we need to be reminded of what we used to do and how you know detrimental that was. Tell me a little bit about your experience in that one. I see that all the time. Mm. And the first area is around natural control. So when we rewire our brain using these type of tools, it gives us more natural control, which is that opposite of that willpower and kind of white knuckling our way through our cravings, et cetera. Mm. And natural control just feels so much easier. And often what happens is we need to be reminded of the fact that we haven't had chocolate in a week. And partners might say as well that you, know, you just seem like you have so much more joy or you seem much more calm and relaxed at home around the kids. And the research also obviously shows these mental health benefits as well. So I think just that natural control is what I love about these tools. But also I think that we're not so good at celebrating small wins in ourselves. I think sometimes, yeah, we can get into a little bit of all or nothing thinking of it has to look like this, which often in our mind is that perfectionism and everything has to be perfect versus here are my small wins and I'm just going to acknowledge them and celebrate them because change is change. 
Yeah, I agree. Any kind of changes, you know, something, isn't it? That's as it. Well. But you write about that where other people need to point out to you that you're behaving differently. And it, it's almost like when we've had, you know, extreme pain and we think it's never going to go away again. And then we have that healing and it's almost forgotten. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember I didn't used to be able to bend over and pick up my shoe or like it's bizarre how we just absorb and change and we don't celebrate it. We just keep going. So it's really lovely. And I think when you're dealing with working on that kind of stuff, if you've got someone to check back in with. So last time we were dealing with this issue, how's that presenting for you now? Because we don't introspect like that in everyday life. We're too busy. (laughs) I agree. And sometimes when I catch up with clients, it's like, okay, how have you been? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, this and that. I'm like, okay, Exactly like you say. Yeah, you have to go back. Let's go back. Last time we caught up, you were eating, blah, blah, blah. This was happening. Oh, no, I haven't been doing that. Okay, let's move to the next one. So new, by the way. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Let's just take a moment to acknowledge it. We just forget. It's really, we used to talk about snacking amnesia, but now we talk about behavioral amnesia, which is a really nice place to come to. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And so leading us on to eating habits, different changes, that sort of things. Do you find similar eating patterns or foods that sneak back in after weight loss surgery? And, you know, why do you think that is? Very similar patterns that do sneak back in. And this is, again, because of the wiring in our brain. Mm. So we've created these habits, we've created these associations with specific foods and or specific times. And so it's no coincidence that Mm. what was happening pre-surgery is It may not look exactly the same post-surgery, but it's a similar type of pattern or it's a similar type of food. That's incredible. And we look at our brains like that. You know, we have these attachments to things. I know some people like white because, you know, when I was a kid, mum would fix everything with a beautiful Vegemite sandwich or whatever. And we just don't see that. We don't marry those feelings and connections and the things that happened together. So yeah, we have that, what we call the honeymoon period in the first year, I believe, from a nutritional standpoint is where it's new, we're excited, we're motivated, we've got like the external input. Everyone's talking about how good we're looking and we're losing weight and it's all working and we're excited because it's working. And then about a year on, things do start to change. And the research shows that it's like people start flipping back to that carbohydrate heavy diet. And we, as a, you know, trying to flip them back into that higher protein. And I think there's huge connections between eating more carbs and being more hungry. But also the reason that we lean to that is in our psychology for sure. Yeah. And when I work with clients and really looking at the associations with specific foods, like there's a reason why someone is craving chocolate and someone else is craving a packet of twisties, for instance, Mm. as a pattern. And what's the association? What does this food remind you of? Is there someone, you know, often it's childhood associations like grandma in the kitchen baking and now you are loving sweet biscuits. So I think it's important to really understand what the association is. So my biggest association was licorice Mm. and I know it's an acquired taste, but yeah, um, I love it. <laughs> I'll tell you why in a minute, then I'll okay. marry in the, the whole thing. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So I lived away from my grandparents. So I grew up in Brisbane. Grandparents were in Melbourne and we used to come down maybe once or twice a year for school holidays. I was very, very close with my grandma. Mm. It was very nurturing. And she used to have this little tin with licorice and we'd eat it together. 
and again, what would happen is later on in life, I didn't know I was triggered because it was all happening subconsciously, but I would just get this strong craving for licorice. And it wasn't until I unpacked it that I realized I was craving a little bit of that nurturing and love from my grandma, grandma, who I really missed when she passed away. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's interesting. The two things I love are licorice, which is we're on our own, I think, aren't we? (laughs) We might be. (laughs) (laughs) It might even be a Melbourne thing. My mother, same thing. She would eat licorice and Turkish delight. And I think her story around that, I feel, was that she was wrangling five children on her own. And I think she must have known that kids don't like licorice or Turkish delight. So they were her favourites. And I think it was that whole thing of, well, the kids aren't going to like these. But my absolute favourites now, if I'm going to do anything like that and have that kind of sugar hit, is licorice. And everybody leaves me the Turkish delight from the favourites box because nobody likes it. I do understand that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite interesting how it's the specific ones, you know, that we have that connection with as well. Yeah, so just even considering what is the feeling that you're trying Mm. to get met from this food? Yeah. That's a great question to ask yourself when you've got that really strong craving for that one food that you keep coming back to time and time again. And a lot of it's love, isn't it? A lot of it's nurture and, you know, and then how do we take that feeling and provide it for ourselves in some other way? And I imagine that's where your work would be really, really helpful is working out what else to do. And also with my work with the rewiring tools is we actually take the feeling out of the food. Mm, And so the food just becomes food and Mm. food is neutral and therefore we can just take it or leave it. So we have more of a choice. Whereas when we have a pleasurable feeling locked into this food, we feel like the food has a power over us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then that's where the whole, I can't do this and my willpower is not strong enough and I am a failure. And And I'm a a flawed person. Yeah. Wow. It is quite incredible when you pair it down like that, just what food means to us. And it's, I don't think there's anything else in the world that's quite as powerful, in my opinion. I completely agree because we need it to live. And also every single celebration or commiseration, like it's all connected to food, isn't it? So you've got the whole gamut of different events in our life. Which is why people say I eat when I'm happy and I eat when I'm sad. It's like we celebrate with food and we, you know, we commiserate with it as well. And it depends on who was around you when you were younger. You know, it's like, oh, you poor thing, you're so sad, here's cake. Or we can find a celebration in any occasion just so we can have more food. It's very cultural. So talking willpower and discipline, if willpower doesn't work, what can we do to feel more in control of our eating? Yes, great question. This is definitely a key question Mm. that I get asked a lot. So first of all, many people are craving control. And the issue with this is that it leads to then them being out of control at some point with food and their weight, which is that all or nothing thinking that we've touched on. And this is so common, this all or nothing thinking block. Mm. And it's probably the key block working with weight loss surgery patients that have struggled for many years with their eating and weight. So it's either like you're in control or you're out of control or you're good or you're bad. And it's one or the other. So control lives in our head. So when our awareness is in our head, and this is often, we're all very strong with being in our head with our to-do lists and our planning and thinking through things. But being out of control also lives in our head as well when our awareness is in our head. So it's kind of like we have different sides of the same coin, which means you can't have one without the other. So Mm. being in control goes with being out of control. 
And control, I have found over the years, isn't the goal. It's more around trust. And when you consider your friends and family members that have a quote unquote normal relationship with food, it's not this forced control that we've talked about that you need with willpower, where we're white knuckling our way through our cravings. It's about trust. Mm. They trust themselves around food. They trust themselves that they can have a tub of ice cream in the freezer and not think about it. You know, that they don't have to devour it and get rid of it, et cetera. So control lives in our head, but trust lives in our body. And this comes back to what we've touched on as well, where being more aware of our body and connected to our body and understanding our cues and signals and feelings is really important. But yet so many of us are disconnected from our bodies. That is a massive point because we don't often look at it like that, do we? It's like trust. And then how do I invoke trust and become a friend with it and myself enough to believe in myself. That's a, it's a really pertinent key message, I think, for looking at the reasons why. I'm just digesting it myself. I think it's something I haven't necessarily paired together. It's a really game-changing combination, isn't it? It sure is. And particularly when, you know, and I was like this myself, I thought the problem was control. Mm. Just need more control. I didn't yeah. realise that part of the journey and the healing was around trust. How can I really trust myself that I can do this or trust myself that I can make good decisions or I can have this food in in the house or not have the food in the house, whichever it may be. You're right, because we talk about control so much, don't we? If I could just control that, I'd be able to do this or if I could just control whatever. And we look at it as a way of pushing through things And I see the trust as a way of actually just calmly moving through it. It's beautiful. And and being through Mm. it as well, rather than the doing and the forcing. The other thing as well is when we are in that control mode, whether that's in control or out of control, we remain an observer in our life. Mm. We're not really fully engaged in life. We're observing from the sidelines. When we are in that trust mode, our awareness is in our body and we are connected not only to ourselves and our our feelings and other people, but also the present moment. So Mm. we're living our life when our awareness is in our body and we're observing our life when our awareness is in our head. And I think having weight loss surgery, it's so much more here. You know, this is about living your best life and how you're showing up. And if we are really serious about that, we need to get into our body a lot more because that's the only place where we are truly living life. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think our whole society builds this whole working in your head mentality. And particularly now we're all on screens and everything's very technological. It's like we're learning something new all the time. We're in our heads thinking about how does this work? What's the next step? And we become, I mean, you look at a computer and it's like to do this end goal, we have to go through all these different little steps in the process. Whereas it's not like that really for when you come sort of getting in touch with yourself. It's not a protocol. It's not a step-by-step process. It's just a kind of almost a surrendering to, you know, you've got this. Yeah. And something that is quite common with many clients I've worked with is a sense that they feel in control in certain areas of their life. So I feel in control at work or at Mm -hmm. home, you know, relationships, et cetera. And this area of eating and weight is the one area where I feel like I just have no control. But they're trying to apply those conscious strategies, again, trying to plan through it, trying to calculate their way through it, (laughs) rather than, I guess, appreciating and understanding that it's actually happening at that subconscious level. And that's Mm. where we need to work at that level. 
spending more time in the unconscious. And, you know, those tools you've spoken about, the EMDR and the EFT are brilliant for that. But I mean, outside of that, we can use meditation, breath work, that sort of thing. Just taking a few deep breaths each day just brings you back into that centered and calms down all that parasympathetic nervous screening. (laughs) Yes, yes. Just enough to give us that moment of making a different decision. That's it. That's it. And even working out, just whatever it is, just getting out of your head into your body yes. is, is really Coming key. Coming more familiar. Beautiful. That's right. So can we cover off the steps to feel more sure. empowered around food without Let's going back that. to that old pre-surgery way of trying to be in control? The control and the trust I'm still working through. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. So I've got a few key steps. So this is what I would recommend if you are feeling a little bit disempowered around food, if this is really resonating this is my recommendation because you might be thinking, well, if I can't control anymore and use the willpower, what can I do? So Mm. that's why I wanted to just walk you through these steps. So the first one is identifying your eating patterns. Now, these are patterns over time. So it's not just about a one-off event, you know, such as an indulgent birthday lunch last week, but what are your typical patterns? So again, is it that nighttime eating when you're alone and everyone's in bed? in front of the device? Is it that 3pm with a cup of tea or is it takeaway food? And we want to choose a specific target to work on. So the more specific you can get, the better. So again, coming back to, is it specific or general? And again, specific, we want say the 9pm at night, you know, eating chocolate on the couch. And if, if you ask someone where it is more general that we have touched on before, where you're just snacking and grazing throughout the day, and there's no one worst time. If that's the case, I would choose your target to be the first time that you have a craving or the first time that you act on that craving. And that could be 9am in the morning or it could be 1pm. So go for the first time if you are more generalized and otherwise you've got your specific target with that specific food. Step two is really making sure we identify between that tummy hunger versus head hunger. Yeah. So for so many of us, we just get feedback that it's time to eat. And we typically don't differentiate between the tummy and the head hunger. And we want to honor the tummy hunger. In my role, I predominantly work with head hunger, that real non-hungry eating or all those food cravings. So we want to make sure, first of all, that you are eating enough during the day. And that isn't the trigger for Mm. um, eating later on, such as at nighttime eating. And that's where working with a really good bariatric dietitian or nutritionist is so valuable. But I ask clients to really look at their patterns of eating and work out a rough split between their head hunger and their tummy hunger. So to what extent are you responding to your hunger signals? Is it 70% Mm. head hunger and 30%? tummy hunger. So just starting to get just a little bit of more information around your patterns and what hunger that you are responding to during the day. Yeah, good point. Then step three is managing your cravings in the moment. So I want to share one of my most effective strategies to manage your cravings. And I want to actually give your listeners one of my free tools, which Ah. is a body scan. So this is my five minute body scan. It's a small investment of time. But what it does is it actually takes your awareness out of your head and places it into your body. So now that you've got your specific target of what you want to work on with your cravings, 
What I would suggest you do next is set an alarm on your phone beforehand. So you actually remember because anything new, it's actually really helpful just to have a little bit of a reminder because you're not in the habit of doing it yet. And then what I recommend you do is then do the five minute body scan. And why this is important is because your head hunger or your cravings is really when your awareness is in your head. If you stay in your head, you're pretty much guaranteed to eat, to give in to that food craving. So what we want to do in this moment is actually shift your awareness from your head into your body. And we actually need a tool to do that because we don't actually automatically facilitate that shift in ourselves. And when we do that, it's a pattern interrupt. So we are breaking a habit, which Mm -hmm. is fantastic. We are slowing things down from those old habitual ways, that automatic pilot behavior. And when your awareness is in your body, you can actually tune in to your tummy and actually ask, like, do I actually really want this now? Do I actually really feel like the chalky? What's going on for me? And sometimes it might be a yes. And if you do still feel like it, I recommend then doing something a bit different, which is pop it on a plate, sit down in a different seat to where you would normally eat this food, slow down your eating, and savor it and enjoy it, which is still disrupting, but still doing and honoring. Is that what the aim aim would be there? And shifting it because Mm. even giving yourself permission to eat it once you've tuned in, you're not doing that shoveling the food in in secret. Like it's a different type of eating and it makes a big difference. Yeah, it's clever. And it is about patterns and habits and shaking them up a little bit. But I think coming into the body is the key. Absolutely. And then the final step that I recommend is just mixing up things in your environment as well. So we've talked about that we're creatures of habit (laughs) and what we did yesterday, we do today and what we do today, we do tomorrow. And these are all of our patterns and we are essentially the sum of our habits. So we typically eat in the same conditions. For instance, I bet you, if your thing is nighttime eating, I bet you eat in exactly that same spot on the couch. Not the other side, but just that you've got your your little comfy spot there. And this is very normal because we love that familiar place that's known and safe. So what this means is let's just say you put your kids to bed first and you sit down in exactly the same seat and you pop the TV on and then the chocolate follows. What I recommend you do is mix things up instead. So come up with a bit of a plan, first of all, before you're in that situation. But the first and the easiest thing you can do is just change seats. When you put the kids to bed, you could go to a different room. You could go to the other side of the couch. Do something that's not familiar. Your brain's going to hate it and it's going (laughs) to feel awkward and uncomfortable and it's going to scream at you just like, what are you doing? Because you're changing a habit um, and it doesn't like it. A few other ideas is don't switch on the TV. So if the TV or some device is involved that Mm. triggers your eating, whether that's on the couch or in bed is another common one as well. Don't switch on the TV. Maybe grab a book if you love reading. Maybe play some music instead. Even rearrange your pantry to mix up the food so it's not in the one spot that your eyes go to every single time. But what's going to happen is the more you do this, the more you're going to hit resistance. Yeah. So expect it, expect that it's going to feel a bit uncomfortable and awkward and it doesn't feel right because it's just simply new. new. But the more you do it, you just then create 
a new yeah. habit and it's yeah. going to then feel this new habit will then feel comfortable in time yeah fantastic I'm just still getting the vision of the pigeon spikes on the lounge where I used to sit <laughs> <laughs> that might you know it's like you need that visual of don't do that we're changing things so even exactly. the same thing, like put something on that chair so it's not accessible I think that's what I need to do is I need a visual so if I need to take something with me when I go like if I'm going to the office and I need to take something down there I have to put it in my way otherwise it won't come with me so the same thing with changing a habit I need to actually either block access to what I was doing or put something there that tells me visually no because my memory is not awesome and even though I was setting out to make a new habit I'll even forget so it's like if that's in the way, I'll go, oh, new habit. That's why the pigeon spikes are on the lounge tonight because you're not meant to sit there. Go do something else. So even if that's something that needs to be done in, in putting things in your environment to shake it up, rearranging the pantry is gold because everything goes in its place, doesn't it? So if you've got your biscuits in the same place, you're going back to that same place. Yeah, and you'll go straight for that area. It's like that heat-seeking missile. Yeah, so brilliant. mixing it up and... They're like little mind hacks, if you like, as a way of providing that pattern interrupt. And then when you provide that pattern interrupt, you slow it down and then you get to choose. Choose. That's new. Well done. That's a beautiful <laughs> process. And, and thank you. I really appreciate because I know that's a lot of what you're doing. And to give something away like that is a beautiful thing to do. So I think that's brilliant. I want to go on to, firstly, you were talking about hitting resistance. Is that something that we go, oh, that's uncomfortable, I'll just go with what's comfortable? What do we do when we're upset about resistance? So resistance, we want to expect resistance any time that we take a step forward to do something positive for ourselves. Because the part of our brain that is really loving the safety and feeling comfortable is triggered and mm. it doesn't like it. So what I suggest and recommend is just to a expect it it's nothing yeah. wrong it's nothing bad but we just want to acknowledge it then and say ah i knew this was <laughs> going to happen here it is here's that resistance yeah but do you know what i'm still going to take that action anyway yeah. i'm still not going to sit on that seat on the couch i'm still yeah. going to turn the tv off and you repeat that and that yeah. then starts to become a new habit I think you bring something lighter into it too. I, I watched myself on the weekend. I went to a course and I found myself in my resistance. And I was like a little kid going, you can't make me do this. And like there was all these rules that I'm just not used to and I don't like. And I sat there and actually I brought a bit of humor into it. And I'm like, I can see what you're doing here, Jackie. You know what I mean? It's like, don't be so hard on yourself that when you're stuck in resistance that you're, you know, kicking and screaming and it's the anger or it's sad or it's, you know, the kind of negative emotions. I've brought in this, I can see what you're doing and you're going to end up stuck here if you don't just sit in this. Let it happen, be resistant and, you know, have your little naughty girl moment. But I actually went from, it was a really quick transition from oh God, I don't want to do this. And there's so many rules and, you know, I'm stuck here. And, and it was a moment that I really, I was either going to make change or not. And to just be aware that you're on the precipice of something that's new and big that's going to happen. And it's quite funny. Like when you look at what you do in those situations, it can be quite funny because you are like a little kid. And a lot of it is your little kid who wants something or doesn't want something. And we just end up fighting it. And I think if you just go, oh, I can see what's happening here. It can be quite entertaining if you actually have the courage to sit and look, look at yourself in that way 
and not make you wrong and not make you broken and not make you failing. Everyone's doing it. You know, think about it in a different way. Courageous. Look at what you're doing. You're actually trying to hack some kind of ingrained program that's been running you for I don't even know how many years. Aren't you amazing? And be curious and be interested in what's next because it gets murky and then it's sort of you push yourself through and have a look at it and go, ah, there, I made it. I'm not going to fall off or I'm not going to, you know, nothing's going to break. It's about standing in it and just being an observer of yourself, but being your best mate. Like you have to really coach yourself in a more positive way. If everything that's you know, challenging you is problematic or it's disastrous or it's ugly, we need to look at change as something that's a bit more beautiful than that. I think if you can look at it in that way, it's humorous and it's human and we are human. And I think they're the moments that we're like, we're incredible. Look what we're doing. We're actually hacking into different programmed parts of ourselves that make us feel comfortable. And suddenly we're turning those on their heads and oh, look, made it. Every day we make it. And we made it yesterday and we'll make it again today. Like, Don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also appreciating that resistance is positive because it means that you are stretching yourself. You are actually outside your comfort zone. And to change, you can't change from a place of comfort. You're going to have to do it. So it's actually a positive thing. So I think a reframe is quite helpful. But also just knowing when you get that talking about humor, when you have that resistance voice that tells you all the things, right? Like, you know, you're going to fail anyway. What's the point? You know, like we've all got yeah. that part of us. Yeah. But could you maybe even try as another little brain hack for you, playing circus music over that, yes. right? Because yes. when we hear circus music, we all smile, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so it's adding humor or even putting like a helium voice for that resistance yes. voice and just seeing it like this silly little voice that we all have. But I Which don't has no to... weight then, does it? Exactly, because you take yeah. the power out of it. Yeah, I like the helium voice one. That's brilliant. Thank you. I'm very aware of your time and you're very, very generous. And I really appreciate that. And what I want to leave our listeners with is how we find you, Georgie Beams. What are we going to do? Yes. So you can come and find me. My website is georgiebeams.com. You can find me on Instagram, which is foodfreedom underscore. And come and download that free resource. And that's really going to help you as well. And pop it on your phone. So you've now got a new strategy to use in the moment. And then all of the resources from all of my podcast episodes are housed on the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast.com. So if there's anything from today's episode that has resonated with you, I don't know how you've gotten through without being resonated with. But look up Georgie Beams' work. She's doing some fantastic stuff and has got a range of different programs and opportunities each week to connect with you. So it is, we were talking how wonderful it is to work in the bariatric space because it's so multifaceted and it's so complex, but it's beautiful to be able to support these people who are, you know, looking for the answers. And I guess the aim of my podcast is to give these examples of how to access mindset change and embrace it. So Hopefully this resonated with a bunch of you all and you're out there Googling Georgie Beams as we speak and Georgie's phone's ringing off the hook. <laughs> Help yourselves, guys. Come, well come find me and say hi. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I, t- I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Jackie. And thank you to all your listeners as well. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. 
If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.